a lot of times people are thinking things in their head anyway, but they're not going to say it unless you ask. It's very rare that you're going to get a super outspoken person who says, I'm so stressed out and this isn't going well. And so you need to ask and you need to pay attention to the nonverbal cues if someone is stressed out. And to that point, we all have had stressful days. And wouldn't it be great if on your stressful day, someone hopped in and said, let me help you and roll up their sleeves. And so I think it's really important to ask, but then take action. Because sometimes people say, are you okay? And they say, I'm having a really hard day. And they say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And it's taking it a step further. When someone's telling you they're not okay, or when someone's telling you that they're stressed out, I, my first thought is, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to help you? And when you model, like, I will help you if you need it, you'd be surprised of how many more people speak up. Welcome to Manager to Manager, a podcast about the experiences of people leaders and how we can enable them to lead engaged, healthy, and high-performing teams. I'm Kamaria Scott, your host, and I'm thrilled to have you join us as we learn, lead, and succeed together. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Manager to Manager. I am so glad to have you back. One of the most amazing things about recording this podcast is I get to meet amazing people in a variety of industries. And they come to me through amazing people that I already know. So today's guest, I'm excited to introduce you to. She works in the finance and banking industry. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about her journey and a couple of things that she's learned along the way. So I'm excited to introduce you to Allison Winters. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump right in. Allison, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I've been in professional or, or financial services for about seven years, and I currently work at a regional bank based out of New Jersey. And I started as an intern at the company, actually, and I am a millennial, so everyone says <laughs> they, don't, they don't stay at their jobs. I am living proof that millennials do if you do the right thing. So I actually started in a rotational program, and what we did was we moved around the bank for two years and spent time in each of the divisions throughout the bank. And ultimately, I always knew I wanted to be in marketing, and I was placed in marketing. I had a really strong career there, a really strong team, but I was approached during the pandemic to start the bank's client experience department. So we just felt the farther away we were from people, the more we needed to connect with customers and actually have a team that was focused on what customers were telling the bank. So I built that team from the ground up. Ultimately, our marketing director retired and they gave me the opportunity to run both. So now I have the client experience and the marketing departments at our institution. Wow. It, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> yes, but it's exciting. Being busy is good. I love that you had the opportunity to start as an intern and have progressively grown your career. And we'll certainly touch on you being a millennial because there's always conversations about millennials in the workplace. So I'm, I'll be interested to hear your perspective on things. I'm curious, as you've had this sent through the organization, are there any things that have stood out to you or have stuck with you along the way in your journey? Yeah. So I think when I started at the bank and obviously finance is a very traditional industry, I made it a really big point to build relationships with people. 
And I think that it's super important, no matter who you work with, to take the time and build that personal connection first so you can understand about that person, what they want, and then ultimately be able to influence the processes or the projects around you. Let's dive into that a little bit because I think one of the things about leading people, and I don't know if we ever say this flat out, but influence is really the only power that you have. We talk about being able to get people to love their jobs, being able to improve performance, able to get our things done. It's really based on our ability to influence people, both on our teams and people who are not on our teams. So let's dive into that, to that a little bit more. Let's first talk about how do you use and leverage influence? How do you build the relationships on your own team to start to have that relationship that then gives you the influence that you need? First and foremost, it's hard, right? You need to know people on your team, but a lot of times you have people on the team who don't directly report to you. So establishing that personal connection and that rapport is super, super important. And I think one of the things that we do, especially on my team, it can be super fast-paced, super stressful. And I actually ask people, what gets you excited about this change and, and why do you see this as a benefit? And it gets people's minds turning as to why am I doing this? Because from a leadership standpoint, I can tell people this is why we're doing it. But I want to understand what what do you think? Do you think this is worthwhile? Do you think that this is exciting? And a lot of times when I assign some of larger projects on my team, I ask for volunteers. So I don't actually say you are going to work on this project. I actually present the project and say, is there someone who wants to take the lead on this? And it actually establishes this culture of wanting to dive in and speak up and and ask more questions about why are we doing this? I find that really presenting the why to people and really giving people an option to buy in is one of the best ways to influence others. You mentioned that you're a millennial and, and that you're leading two departments. And when I think of leadership, I think there are certain assumptions that come with like when I have a role, I have a title that automatically people will follow me and do what I say do because I have a title. And so I'm curious that do you find that being in the organization for seven years, having come up through the organization, as we talk about millennials, do you find that you have the natural people do it because I say do it? Or do you think it's really important that people really think about the relationships and how they influence getting things done? If I'm being totally honest, I don't think my title has anything to do with influencing others. From the moment I started at the bank, I, I made a really conscious effort to keep in mind I was rotating around. I would sit with people. I'd have to ask them. It was awkward at times. I'd have to ask them, what do you, what do, you do? And there was speculation with that where people would say, is this person trying to get me in trouble? Or are they going to repeat what we do? Are they looking for errors in what we do? And so I started changing my approach and saying, how did you come to the bank? What do you like about your job? Is there anything you see that we could do better? And really just leaning on other people as the experts. I think so many times leaders walk in and they say, I have a title and I know how to do this. And mm -hmm. you are going to take this part of the project. Right. And I just, that's not how you get things done. Even when I was at a lower level in the company, I still, I, I attribute my success to being able to influence even at that level. 
because mm-hmm. I would ask people, what do you think? You've been here longer than me. You know our customers. You know our backend processes. Here's what I'm thinking, but I don't know if I'm right. And what do you think? And so I think a lot of times people work towards that title. And it's really not about the title because you only get the title with the work that you did prior to that. I love that. The reason why that stood out to me is because we don't talk enough about having to approach people from a place of getting to know them. What are their preferences? Pulling them in instead of being more directive. And I think about the conversations around employee engagement and how people feel about their work and their jobs and their leaders. So much of that is based upon how that person made them feel and how they pulled them into something and whether or not they feel like they've been seen and heard in the conversation. So so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You, you talk about being able to work with your team, being able to work with other people who are not on your team. Do you find that it's different? Is the, is the approach different or is it the same? I think naturally we all have a little bit of favoritism towards our teams. Yes. So, <laughs> but I actually think the interactions are similar but different. So mm-hmm. my team, I interact with them every single day. There are times where we have tons of projects and we also handle crises. So if something went wrong, I, I can be a little more blunt with my team and they know I'm coming from a place of we need to get this done and we need to do what's right for the company. Mm-hmm. Now, like their teams, I, I may not interact with them every day. I know I need to soften it up and I know I need to get everyone on the call and say, we're going to do this together and and who's going to take this piece? Who's going to take that piece? So I think it's a delicate balance. I mean, if if you think about even just general email etiquette, right? If you're writing to your team member every single day, you may not always start with a, hi, good morning, hope all is well. You're like, hey, how are you? And and I think you proceed with caution, especially when you're dealing with outside teams, because they may not understand where you're coming from or the project that was just dumped in your lap. So I think it's super important when you're dealing with outside teams to really just sit everyone down and and say, let's get aligned. Here's what's happening and who's going to do what. Um, And then with your own team, sometimes you can be a little blunter. You can say, all right, guys, we're doing this today and and leave all the other stuff out. You know that your team has context, whereas another team may not. Your team, the two teams that you lead, are, are really charged with being internal consultants to the organization and leading and bringing about change. Yes. And so your approach to an extent has to be modified to think about how you're doing that. Can you share a little bit about what is your approach to that? How do you get people to want to come along? Because I think the theme I'm hearing is in, in how you describe your approach, which I love, by the way, is that you are getting people to want to come along, wanting to follow in the vision, wanting to be a part of whatever project or change that you're trying to bring about. So can you share a little bit about, not necessarily just from a, here's how I do it with my individual team, but as I think about the organization and I think about how I'm influencing change, how do you go about doing that? I'll talk a little bit about my CX department because as I mentioned, when we started CX, we would come to people and say, I think there's an issue with this process or here's what the customer surveys are telling us. And people immediately we're like, oh my gosh, they are the police. They are the police of the, of the bank and stay away. And one of the ways that we got over that is we really met with teams and, and just showed them data. So we would say blank percent of customers say that they're satisfied. Blank percent of customers say they would use this service again. 
blank percent of customers say that there is a welcoming atmosphere. And we're seeing this translate in support cases and in complaints. Why do you think this is? And I think whenever you're dealing with change, data is a really good place to start because it's a fact, right? You can't argue about it. It tells the person why you're coming to them because sometimes I think people get lost and why is this person really coming to me? Are they trying to get me in trouble? Why do they want to change my process? I am the expert. So I think presenting people with facts and saying, what do you think or what do you think is driving this puts the ownership back in their court so they can share their expertise and feel part of the team. So that's one of the best ways that we really started to, to make change within the organization. And then I think while we're juggling a lot of change all at the same time, there's planned activities. Again, there's always fires. There's always crises. I think it's really important to make action items digestible. There are so many times you get on a call and they rattle off a list of 25 things that everyone needs to do. And then people throw their hands up and say, whoa, I don't have time for this. This is too much for me. I don't own that. And I think when you say, so what do you think the next steps are over the course of the next week? You don't always have to lay the whole project out in front of everyone. It's really about like, what are we doing now? And in between the next time we meet or the next time we talk and who's doing it. So picking those three to four things that are going to move you along. And it's so much easier to raise your hand and say, I'll do one of those things. I'll do two of those things. And then really allowing ourselves to check in with people and notice those signs of stress too. Sometimes you'll reach out and you'll say, hey, our, our next meeting's on Tuesday. And you can just tell that someone's like, oh, I haven't moved it along. <laughs> and a lot of credibility my team had built is the ability to roll up their sleeves and say, is there anything I can take off your plate? Or is there anything I can do to help you? Because sometimes it puts more stress back on us, but they understand the intention is we really want to help and we really want to move things forward. And people want to be a part of that. I, I want to break apart a couple of things you said because you dropped a, a few good nuggets in that response and I want to pull apart. So the first thing you talked about was how you use data in the conversation. And I love that you pointed out that people can't argue with facts. But I think what, what jumped out at me in what you said was not necessarily the fact that you use data, but how you so skillfully use data in the conversation to draw someone in. So I heard you say, I gave them the data and then I asked them a question about the data. Like, what do you think this means? And then I heard you say that I asked for their input on the other side. So there's something interesting about the way that you come into the conversation. And I'm wondering, is that is that on purpose? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's totally on purpose and not in a manipulative way. It's I want people to feel comfortable in sharing their opinion. When I first started at the bank, I would sit in meetings. And I remember one of my managers saying to me, when you're asked to come to a meeting, you're being asked to participate. So you need to speak in the meeting. And it's not to speak to speak, but I, I genuinely feel like if I were to throw data at people and say, this is what's wrong, then what do I need them for? I already know, right? And, and there's two sides to every story. And I think allowing people to share their expertise 
not only educates me like, oh, here are the things that I should look at or here are the obstacles I'm going to face because this person's telling me that maybe this was a management policy that was put into place two years ago. Immediately in my head, I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to talk to management about this or all right, there could be a technological issue behind this. Again, data is only one side of the story. If, if we use data to do everything, we wouldn't need people. And right. look at it. We're all in big companies. We need people. We we absolutely do. And and what, what this brings up to me is the words floating in my head are psychological safety. So when we're trying to influence people and we're trying to influence them towards change and we're having to say, you're starting here, but I need you there, that approach of bringing them in with data following that up by asking a question, asking for their input, it all comes across like a safe way to start the conversation instead of putting people on the defense. And where that leads me to is we talked a little bit about what it's like to lead your own team, but to also lead other people through change. And really there's no difference. If you're, if you're having a conversation with your own team, let's say about performance, there's still the same conversation of here's what I observed, like the data. Asking for that, what do you make of this? And then asking input about the way forward. So I can see the parallels between how you might lead your own team personally and then how your team then continues to lead others in the organization. And I think establishing that framework in a team that's making change is super important too. So not only me doing it, but sitting down with my team and saying, this is a really good way to start and, and let me know what you're hearing. Absolutely. And I think... What, what then jumps out at me is how important it is for us as leaders to model the behaviors that then other people on our team start to do. So even as I listen to how you approach situations, I can hear you starting to model things for your team that they probably then take forward to, if this is how I approach it internally, this is how they're going to approach it when we're trying to influence other people as well. And that made me think about the importance of EQ. So when you said you know, we also are looking for those signs of stress. We're looking for, my goodness, are people feeling overwhelmed by what we're sharing and then how do we help them? The importance of being able to recognize those signs of resistance. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think feedback throughout the whole process is really important. And a lot of times people are thinking things in their head anyway, but they're not going to say it unless you ask. It's very rare that you're going to get a super outspoken person who says, I'm so stressed out and this isn't going well. And so you need to ask and you need to pay attention to the nonverbal cues if someone is stressed out. And to that point, we all have had stressful days. And wouldn't it be great if on your stressful day, someone hopped in and said, let me help you and roll up their sleeves and so I think it's really important to ask, but then take action because sometimes people say, are you okay? And they say, I'm having a really hard day. And they say, oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And it's taking it a step further. When someone's telling you they're not okay, or when someone's telling you that they're stressed out, I, my first thought is what are we going to do about that? How are we going to help you? And when you model, like, I will help you if you need it, you'd be surprised of how many more people speak up. And then there's building that reciprocity and that trust of if, if I'm going through something, it's a conversation that we can have. And so the ability to influence people toward any direction, they still have to know that they can trust you, that you have their best interests at heart. And so that response to distress is really important. And so do you think that it's really important that 
leaders and, and people leaders and project leaders be able to scan the environment and see those signs? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely critical. Again, 90% of people won't speak up and tell you how they're feeling. And so by you asking and, and making it a point to ask often, it's not ask once and they know I'm open. It's all the time. And it allows others to have open conversations as well. It, it sets the tone that I want to hear your opinion. And when I keep asking, I expect you to speak up and be honest with me. And then when you, again, take action and you actually roll up your sleeves and you help someone because they told you I need help, you become a resource for them. And they want to give that back to you when you come to them. And I think to your point, you said it's reciprocal. That's exactly what it's all about. You want to help someone who helped you. And I think our team a lot of times is that first step where we come out and say, we're going to help you. And then as people get on board, we get that back. And that's why our culture and our teams have been able to create so much positive change over the years. I mean, I've only had the department for two years and I have a mile long list of all of the things that we've accomplished. And I think to that point too, we document our wins. We have an executive summary that we send up to our executive team about what we're working with the departments on to raise our quality service scores. And I can't tell you how many people have written back to me and been like, I didn't even realize we were doing this much. And putting that on paper and having people see how much they've accomplished is, is really cool. Yes. And what that brings to mind is the importance of championing successes along the way. Yeah. Because even with the best of intentions, sometimes we can't wait till we get to the absolute end of the journey to celebrate. But when we can see and coach and reinforce and celebrate those little wins and people can see them and see you championing them, it also continues to give trust in your department that you're there to help. One of the things I said, I'd come back to your mention of being a millennial. So <laughs> one of the things that frequently comes up is that we have four generations in the workforce. With each generation, seeing the world differently, seeing the world of work differently. And you also mentioned that you're in a very traditional field. When we think about having influence and being able to influence from where you are, can we talk a little bit about what's that like? How do you still continue to think about how you influence? So I love this topic. Our company actually started ERGs two years ago, and I was the chair for the Young Professionals ERG in its founding year. And one of the things our ERG always talked about is I want to get to know other people in the organization. I want to get to know senior leaders many of times in different generations. And so we did this exercise, which I encourage every company to do. And we created flip charts. We did it on a summer day. It was beautiful outside. We created flip charts and it had things like, what is your preferred method of communication? Famous brands and bands, things that we would actually ask people to guess about the generation. So you would start at a flip chart that wasn't yours and you'd move along and you'd end up at your flip chart. So you could see what the other generations thought about you. So do you like phone? Do you like texting? Do you like email? And then the generation would stare at their flip chart and what others guessed about them and circle what was right. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. And it really sparked a lot of conversation as we went through all of the flip charts. One of the things I remember from the exercise was our silent generation. 
they told the story about being latchkey kids. And they said, (laughs) Gen Xers, yep. (laughs) And so they said, Gen Xers, and they said, a lot of times in work, I find myself placing instructions in front of someone who works for me and saying, you got this. And then millennials are like, oh my gosh, I I don't know what to do. And they explain that growing up, they're like, no one was there for me. The key was (laughs) under the door. And we had a couple of laughs about it and, and a couple of jokes, but it really started making people understand this is why and made them excited about living up to that for that person. So it was so funny because people would go back to their manager and they would take the work and be like, I got this and I'll come to you if I have any questions because they know what their manager is expecting and why they are that way. And that was like one of the examples that we did. There were so many from that session that I could talk about. But it was a really great session. And I actually think some of the older generations were really appreciative to explain to a younger generation, this is what we expect, or this is what I prefer. And taking the time to actually call in an older generation and say, we care, we want to hear, and we want to do it in a fun way. I mean, we left the session and, and I swear everyone had like 25 new friends. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that for so many reasons. One of the first things that stood out to me about that is curiosity. And I hear this as a theme as we're talking, curiosity about people. What do you want to work on? What do you want to raise your hand on? Getting to know the person on the other side that you're trying to influence and then being able to understand the why of why they think that way. And I feel like we forget that in the conversation we're amongst generations of, what was happening in the world mm-hmm. when that person was sort of coming up. And I'll tell you, as a Gen Xer, my son is 20 and I look at him and his experience is very different than mine, whereas I absolutely was a latchkey kid and was like, figure it out. Because of the pandemic, he really honestly has not known me not being at home, even though I have a full-time job. So his level of independence is a little bit less than mine was. And I keep that in mind sometimes. And I'm like, this generation? But I... I <laughs> They're so needy. (laughs) But I get it. The the experience is different. And I think taking the time, so kudos to your organization. I just want to stop right there and say kudos to your organization for taking the time to have not just a training class, but an activity that encouraged curiosity and conversation and people being able to say, this is how I like to be led or these are my expectations so that we're influencing appropriately and, and to what people need. So I, I love that activity, again, because it encourages people to be curious and think about how people want to be led. I also think it encourages us to think about what is the norm uh, when we're thinking about introducing change and, we're, and, and influence. A lot of times we're starting from a place of this is the way we've always done it. And so different generations will have different perspectives on how we should do it. So are there any examples of that pop up when you think about we started in different places But now having this understanding of of one another and our generations led to a difference of how we've done things. I would say one of the most basic examples, and this one always makes me laugh. When I was in the marketing department, I was placed on one of our internal committees and it was 8.30 on a Wednesday in person. I remember being nervous going to this committee. I was like, I'm going to be sitting with all of these executives and I would report on what we were marketing. So as they were pricing and changing products, they would know what was out there and what might need to be changed. So I walked into the meeting and I just sat down in any random chair. 
And everyone was like, no, 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 no. There's assigned seats. You're in that chair. And I remember saying, why are there assigned seats? And everyone kind of looked around and said, I, I don't know. <laughs> and and we looked at ourselves and we said, really? Why are we sitting in assigned seats? It may be fun. You get used to the person you sit next to, et cetera. But I, I'm like, why is why are we sitting in assigned seats? And it's so funny because the session after that, everyone sat wherever they wanted. They said, that was so silly. I don't know why we were sitting in assigned seats. And now we just sit wherever we want. And it's, it's something as simple as that. Just the intention of wondering why. I'm not criticizing it. If you want to sit in a seat, sit in a seat. But just asking, why are we doing this? And does it matter? And does it have a purpose? Because if it doesn't have a purpose and if it doesn't matter, let everyone sit in their own seat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love that. I love it as an example. And what stands out to me about that example coming off of the activity is Learning and understanding how to leverage influence to impact change is, in my opinion, one of the single greatest skills that a people leader can have. Because whether it's we're implementing a new system, whether or not it's I need to change performance, any sort of view of that, being able to think about how do I bring people on a journey to a different destination is critical to someone who leads a team, much less a department or two. And so I want you to sort of think back then to, to your experience in the kind of the early days and, and maybe give some advice, maybe pay it forward a little bit. What would you say to someone who is learning to develop this skill? How would you suggest they go about doing that? I think it's super important in anything you do to give people choices and be authentic about that. If you're giving someone a choice, don't hold it against them later. And I that's that's a big issue I see sometimes. It's like, well, you asked who wants to work on it? And just because I, I said, not me, you're mad. Right. <laughs> so I think always giving people a choice, it, it really makes people feel a part of it and being authentic about you mean it. You, you do have a choice. Giving people digestible action items. Again, I know I, I said it. If you are trying to influence or create change, the last thing you want is people to feel overwhelmed or like you're dumping on them. You want to be a team player and you want to make it as simple as possible. And even if it is those, you said, celebrating the small wins along the way, it, it needs to be digestible for people. Lastly, I would say too, just questioning things with a purpose and not just to criticize people. So something about influencing is you you are going to make a change, but people need to know it's coming from the best place. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's coming from a place of, I really want us to be better and sometimes I see a lot of finger pointing or a, why are we doing this and really saying, here's what I see and what are your thoughts? Do you think this is functioning correctly? And, and asking people and people see that your intention is to understand, not to criticize. And then you really create that change together. I love that. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I love the stories that you've shared and, and truly the nuggets that you have given to the audience. And if you're listening, I'm going to encourage you to channel your inner Allison and think about how you approach influence and how you lead change. So consider whether or not you are bringing data to the table, but more importantly, are you inviting people into the journey and using what you know to help them feel like they're a part of it? So I hope this is a wonderful episode for you and you got as much out of it as I did. Thank you for listening to Manager to Manager. Until next time.